Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational program titled COVID-19, Which Drug, When, and Why? Antiviral Agents. During this podcast, Dr. David Wool, professor in the School of Medicine and site leader, Global Infectious Diseases Clinical Trials Unit at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, discusses the use and timing of antiviral agents for hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. For more information about Dr. Wool and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Wool has to say about antiviral agents for COVID-19. Welcome to COVID-19, which drug, when, and why, antiviral agents for COVID-19. I'm Dr. David Wool. I'm a professor of medicine at the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So let's move on to our program. This is a familiar rubric that I think some of us have seen over the last year or so that has helped us understand more about SARS-CoV-2 pathogenesis. And again, this is a framework. This is not what happens in everyone, of course, but it has us understanding that different phases of SARS-CoV-2 infection may be driven by different pathogenic mechanisms, such that early in the illness, what we see is viral replication and maybe even some viral-mediated changes go on that lead to symptoms. And then more and more, we see immune function takeover, immune responses responsible for many of the things that we feel, right? So whether that be fever or more and more, things like aches, and then when we start to get to pneumonia, Um, some of the inflammatory reactions we see in the lungs that lead to decreased ability to ventilate and to oxygenate. So in the very, very early stages, it's not to say that there isn't an inflammatory response pretty much from the get-go, but we see a predominance really driven of symptomatology and illness by viral replication being then subsumed by a host inflammatory response. Now, in most of us, the host inflammatory response is helpful and it's short-term and we recover. But in some people, it could be continuous and deleterious, leading to the things that you see on the right side of this slide, ARDS and shock and uh, a lack of ventilation. And that could be deadly. So this helps us not so much in just thinking about this from an academic standpoint, but it also allows us to target our therapies. There are sweet spots, as we'll talk about, for different therapeutics based upon where someone is in this spectrum of the pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2. Let's talk about specific therapies that are commonly used in outpatients with COVID-19. So now we have a variety of different medicines that are administered through different routes of administration. So the first we're gonna talk about is neuromatralavir, also with ritonavir, remdesivir, molnupiravir, and then we'll talk more about which therapy is right for which patient or which patient is right for which therapy. So nirmatrelavir plus ritonavir is an orally administered antiviral. It's a protease inhibitor. And we've learned much about this from the EPIC-HR trial. So in this trial, non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19 were entered into the study. These were people who had some comorbidity or demographic characteristic that placed them at risk of developing severe illness. So the HR is high risk. They were randomized to the drug at the standardly used doses that we have right now, BID, 
And remember, the ritonavir here is not acting as an antiviral, much like what we use ritonavir for now in HIV therapy. It's to boost the active drug. There's going to be issues with that, of course, as you're thinking of drug-drug interactions. The other arm got matching placebo. So this is a BID regimen for five days. And this was started pretty soon after people developed symptoms. And this is a pretty large study, right? Over 1,100 people per arm. So really great data. And the primary endpoint was hospitalization or death by day 28. What we saw was fairly remarkable in that this oral therapy achieved a risk reduction in hospitalization or death. And this is really driven by hospitalization, but also some part death that was on par with what we've seen with infused monoclonal antibodies in previous studies. So here we see an almost 90% reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death. And you can see here very, very limited data on deaths because there were not too many. Unfortunately, there were 12 deaths by those who started by day five of, of symptom onset in the placebo arm, but none in the active treatment arm. So that's really important. They did stratify some of their findings based upon when people started this earlier, started by day three versus by day five. And you can see those data here, but they're very, very consistent. In the safety analysis, there were fewer serious adverse events and drug discontinuations with the active arm versus placebo. So this looks very well tolerated. Now we've had an experience since this, these trial data became available where many people have received this and received it successfully. In fact, this study was stopped early, as you can imagine, given the difference that we're seeing in hospitalization and death between the active treatment arm and those who receive placebo. And now there is EUA, emergency use authorization for this, that was granted back in late December. So really important data. Let's move to a very different drug. This is remdesivir. So it's similar in some ways in that it is a direct acting antiviral. This is another agent that is antiviral, but this is an agent that is not taken orally. It is injected. It's infused. So we know a lot about remdesivir from patients in the hospital. We'll recall that for people who are hospitalized with COVID-19, so these are people who are sicker, but across a spectrum of illness of hospitalized patients, some requiring no oxygen, some requiring oxygen, and some requiring um, mechanical ventilation. We saw that remdesivir when administered as a loading dose and then followed by several days, in this case up to 10 days, of IV remdesivir versus placebo. In the ACT-1, this is an NIH, NIAID trial, we saw that there were benefits in terms of median time to recovery and even uh, in mortality, at least a suggestion of that, although it didn't reach statistical significance. And remdesivir has been used in hospitalized patients pretty consistently in many places, especially early on in hospitalization. What about remdesivir in people who are outpatients? And again, we've learned a lot about remdesivir in hospitalized patients that have helped us understand the earlier we use it during hospitalization, the better the outcome is. In people who are admitted to the ICU, who are mechanically ventilated, less benefit there than in people who require minimal or no oxygen, according to the data that we've seen from ACT-1 and other studies. So what if you even push that further to the left, if you will, in people who are outpatients, who haven't really progressed to the point of requiring oxygen, but are people who are at high risk for developing severe COVID-19? The pine tree addressed this. Now, giving you know, five or 10 days of IV therapy is not very feasible to outpatients. So this is a truncated administration of remdesivir, again, with the loading dose, but then followed by two days, so three days altogether of IV remdesivir versus placebo, similar design to what we've talked about for the 
EPIC HR study and most of the outpatient studies, these are people who are at risk. Pretty early in their symptom onset, in this case, uh, symptoms had to be present for less than seven days and people had to have a positive test for fewer days. So getting people a little bit earlier. And again, the primary outcome was the composite of hospitalization or mortality at day 28. Again, pretty impressive results where we can see similar to what we saw previously with the EPIC HR study and what we've seen with the monoclonal antibody studies as well for treatment is that uh, there was a significant difference. Uh, and you can see here really nicely, again, relative risk reduction of about 87% in hospitalization. This is highly statistically significant. And that's really uh, very encouraging. It gives us another option. Interestingly enough, and maybe this is a feature of the way that this drug works and where uh, it distributes in the body, there was no change in the viral load from nasal pharyngeal swab, which we've seen in other um, studies where we do see, especially monoclonal antibodies, a drop in the viral burden in the nose. That didn't seem to be operative here. It just may mean that remdesivir gets to other places that it needs to get, specifically the lower respiratory tract, probably more than the upper respiratory tract. So that's an interesting feature of this and finding. I'm not sure about the clinical significance, but overall, on par data with what we saw with the previous study, but this is for an IV therapy that could administered, be administered over three days. Safety looked, again, very good. All the therapies we're talking about look really good as far as safety. What about molnupiravir? So molnupiravir, again, is another outpatient therapeutic. It also is an oral therapy, and it also is taken twice a day for five days. But it, it, the difference here, uh, as we'll talk about, and it is a direct acting therapeutic, is that some of the clinical trial data look a little different than what we've talked about so far. So here is a study called Move In and Move Out, where we look at patients who are hospitalized for Move In and non-hospitalized patients for Move Out. And you can see the design here. These are people who have SARS-CoV-2. And we'll focus mostly on the outpatient, the non-hospitalized patients. And again, this is very similar to what we've seen with the previous designs and the inclusion criteria. With the move out uh, final analysis uh, that was uh, publicized in non-hospitalized patients, we saw a risk reduction in hospitalization or death that was only around 30%. So we could say only 30% because it's relative to what we've seen with other trials where we're talking about close to 85, 90% reductions. This is somewhat disappointing. Now, I will point out that the deaths are really different here. So small numbers, but nine in the placebo arm versus only one in the molnupiravir arm. So clearly this drug has activity, but whether it's a function of the design and where the study was done and some other things that we, we may not be able to fully understand that confounded the result, we're not seeing as robust a reduction in hospitalization as we saw in the other studies. And, and it's unclear exactly why that is. And if there's anything specific about this particular agent and the way it works, that makes that it different than the previous therapies that we've talked about. It also does have emergency use authorization. And I didn't point it out before, but remdesivir is an approved, it's the only therapeutic FDA fully approved. But for this drug, for molnupiravir, we're talking about an emergency use authorization that allows it when other options are not readily available. And that could be because of stockouts or the, the patient is not a good candidate for these other therapeutics. A concern about molnupiravir is given its mechanism of action, which is to cause purposefully mutations of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to push it towards catastrophic mutations that don't allow it to replicate. 
Concerns are that that can cross over into mammalian cells. And there's some in vitro data looking at high doses of malnupiravir, much higher than would be achieved with taking this by a human for five days at the doses that are called for in the EUA. And for a longer period of time than we administer it for therapeutics, there can be some changes in mammalian cells that are concerning. So there's limitations on use of this drug based upon pregnancy and based upon age. And while there are not absolute contraindications, it's discouraged to use this drug, malnupiravir, in women who are pregnant or about to get pregnant, and in children, again, who may be more susceptible to some genetic influences of a drug like this, given their, their rapidly developing bodies. So who's a good treatment candidate? And this is really important because it's not that everyone who develops SARS-CoV-2 infection is a candidate for these therapeutics. As pointed out, in each of these studies, the outcome of interest was hospitalization or death, and a composite of the two. Thus, we're talking about people who entered these studies who had some risk factors for either getting really sick from SARS-CoV-2, which good news is the majority of us do not, or dying, of course. So these therapeutics are really designed to just exactly for that population. We don't have data that consistently show us that these therapies reduce time to recovery, to getting back to work, to getting back to school to getting your symptoms better or minimized. We don't have data that support the use of these therapeutics that we've talked about for those purposes. These are designed to keep people from progressing in their COVID-19 to the point of requiring oxygen and being hospitalized. And that's a really key point. And that helps us understand who is a good candidate and who is not a good candidate for these therapeutics. There've been a number of different studies, such as this one, looking at the risk for getting sicker with COVID-19, and as we all appreciate, the older you are, the greater the risk for really bad things happening to you with SARS-CoV-2. And it's fairly profound. I mean, you can see right here that the risk ratio as we go up in age is pretty profound. The other thing we've learned is that there are comorbidities or morbidities that can influence the course of SARS-CoV-2, obesity being one of the most powerful. There are other comorbidities that are listed here that you can see that make sense as well, either because they reduce your ability to mount a good immune response or because they could complicate recovery, either because of um, some ventilatory problem or cardiovascular problem, being able to clear your airway, like with neurocognitive disorders. And of course, COVID-19 puts a stress on the body. And so if people have underlying diseases, those diseases can get worse. There's been other data that show us very nicely that it's not just generally one of these comorbidities, but it's the confluence or piling on of multiple comorbidities, especially as we talk about older people, that put people at very high risk for ending up needing life support and eventually even being at risk for dying. So having two, three, four or more comorbidities. Of course, not listed here is one of the biggest risk factors for doing poorly with SARS-CoV-2 is not being fully vaccinated. And I would add on not only fully vaccinated, but being boosted, at least with having one booster. So when we think about the various therapeutics we have, you know, the arrows in our quiver for people who are outpatients, looking at all of the drugs we've talked about, at the top of the list, I think most of us agree that oral therapy should be there. That it's much more accessible then infused monoclonal antibodies, whether even if they're injected rapidly, getting into an infusion center, getting an IV placed, having that chair available to you, being observed afterwards 
it just adds to bottlenecks in the process. And as we've talked about, the earlier, the better when it comes to treating SARS-CoV-2. So when we talk about nirumatrelivir with ritonavir, it is on top of the list in a preference for people who are are at risk for uh, severe COVID-19 who are age 12 and older, weigh at least 40 kilograms or more. And the indication is to use it within five days of symptom onset. Beyond that, we haven't studied it, and there's a decreased chance that it will work. And so this is the top line. This is what's preferred. Now, there are drug interactions with ritonavir, which is a very powerful and potent inhibitor of the CYP4A system, P450 system that metabolizes many drugs. There's a lot of information that's accessible out there, so you shouldn't be afraid to use this this drug. It's very useful. It's very accessible. So just look at interaction checkers. The University of Liverpool has a very nice COVID-19 interaction checker that you can check this drug versus drugs that patients are on to determine if there is a significant interaction. It also could be that if someone's on a medicine that's contraindicated, in many cases, that medication could just be held, such as statins. It doesn't hurt most people to stop a statin for a few days, for instance. What about remdesivir? Remdesivir is lower down on the list, given, of course, the issues with administering this three days in a row consecutively IV. It is an option, certainly for people who can't take nirumatrelivir with ritonavir or a monoclonal, and that's how we position it at our university medical center as an alternative when the others are not as available. One thing to point out is when we look at this, it's not only the therapy and its order of preference and the time from symptom onset, which is really important because for most of these agents, we are talking about use within five days of symptom onset. An exception is remdesivir because it was studied that way for use within seven days of symptom onset. And that's commensurate with what we're seeing with the monoclonal antibodies. The other thing, of course, is age. And so these therapeutics are for people who are 12 years of age and older, weighing at least 40 kilograms. For remdesivir, actually, uh, children who are less than 12 years and weigh less than 40 kilograms can consider IV remdesivir. Again, it would need to be started within seven days of symptom onset. As we mentioned, there are monoclonal antibodies, and there's been a little bit of an arms race between the monoclonal antibodies and their activity against SARS-CoV-2 and the variants uh, of SARS-CoV-2 and how they develop just innately some uh, resistance to some of the monoclonals we've had. So citrovimab, which is a monoclonal that was doing a lot of heavy lifting for us during the previous Omicron surge, has had decreased activity against BA2, the subvariant of Omicron. So we're, we're not using this anymore. And bebtilovimab, we have some good phase two, early phase three data, and certainly in vitro data that indicates it does have activity against BA1, BA11, and BA2. And it is now the monoclonal antibody of choice where available. Again, for those who can't take nirumatrelivir or can't get a monoclonal for one reason or another, and you want to start molnupiravir as an oral therapy instead of remdesivir, that's also acceptable. So you can see the hierarchy and how we should be thinking about this. But the best therapy generally for most people is the one that could be started the soonest. And here, as we've mentioned, the NIH and other organizations have had guidance that help us understand who might be good candidates. The NIH helps us also understand the prioritization that we should apply, especially since as during this pandemic, there have been some constraints on the supply and inventory of many of our therapeutics, and we have not always had as plentiful a supply as we would like. 
So in tiering this, they've placed people who are immunocompromised and not expected to mount a good response to vaccination due to underlying conditions or medications at the top. And that makes a lot of sense. These are the people, this is the phenotype that ends up in our ICU. If you looked at the ICUs in the United States during the Omicron surge of the winter, many people were in this category. Certainly for tier two, unvaccinated individuals rise up. Uh, and are at risk for severe disease, of course. Anyone over 65, anyone less than 65 with clinical risk factors, as we talked about, then lower down are vaccinated individuals, even those who are at risk for severe disease, because fully vaccinated people, even with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, we just don't see them end up in the hospital very much. So that makes a lot of sense. But certainly age is a big risk factor. And very, very lowest is people who are fully vaccinated and you know, do not have as many risk factors. So individuals in tiers three and four who've not received a COVID vaccine are likely at higher risk because they've not had that, that immunity built up. So they, this helps us understand a little bit more about who we should be prioritizing, especially when we have less supply than we would like. So the take-home points are, we do have antiviral agents for COVID-19, which is fantastic, and we have some choices to offer our patients. And they're indicated for people who are not hospitalized. But now we have not only for hospitalized patients, but non-hospitalized patients who are at high risk, therapeutics that can make a difference. Antiviral agents work best, as we've continued to say, when used earlier in the course of COVID-19. Thus, again, logistics play a big role, just as much, I think, as some of the clinical trial data. And we should get people on a therapeutic as soon as possible. Some of the therapeutics, maybe even monopirivir, might work even better if it started earlier. Oral antiviral agents are currently available for outpatient use. People have to sometimes look for them, you have to hunt for them. There's websites that the government has set up that may be very helpful. IV remdesivir is a treatment option for hospitalized and now people who are not hospitalized patients and is an IV therapy, much like we've seen previously with the monoclonal antibodies It requires three days of IV therapy. The place in therapy may involve due to heterogeneity among SARS-CoV-2 variants and subvariants. We've seen that. Good news is for these direct acting agents, so for nirumatrelvir, for malnupiravir, we haven't seen, and for remdesivir, we haven't seen variants affect their activity. We have seen it for the monoclonals, which makes sense because these variants change and vary in their spike protein configuration, and that's what the monoclonals target. So it makes some sense that as variants emerge with changes to their spike protein, due to the pressure that's being applied by our immune systems, we can see a diminution of activity against um, the virus by some monoclonals. Thank you very much to Dr. Wool, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full COVID-19 Which Drug, When, and Why program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.